0: Okay, as is the custom, first we'll talk about, if anyone has anything to talk about, Luke this morning, then we'll open up to anything, and then, Natalie's not even here, I do have this, I do have this, but, um, so, Luke, any questions on this morning and Luke? Yes! He, uh, Whether or not he's a perfectionist, he, he is setting a high bar of what he's trying to do. I think as an educated man, he probably had access to, um, to histories, and he knew what the bar was, and he's trying to reach that level. I think he's trying to write something that can be put alongside of Herodotus or Josephus, and I think he succeeds. It, which is not to say the other Gospels are inferior. I just don't think they were trying to do that. Um, I don't think their goal was to write. I think Luke's trying to write an actual historic work as a historian. And Matthew, he's an eyewitness. I'm just going to tell you the stuff I saw. John is this old man. I'm going to, he's aware of the other Gospels. And since they didn't tell you these stories, I'm going to tell you these stories. I mean, I, I kind of think of John more in that sort of grandfatherly way. You know, it's all true. Luke, I'm aware of the histories. They're insufficient. They're not good enough. I'm going to write a history. You know, and he writes most of the New Testament. Um, and his detail and precision is just remarkable. I only read part of that long quotation of his accuracy, but just absolutely just you can't even argue with his accuracy. I mean, the notion that people cause this is this is the prevalent notion ooh up in the early twentieth century, nineteenth century, bunch of uh, Germans, dead Germans now, um neo-Orthodoxy, that all the gospels were written third, fourth century down in Egypt, and there's just no way there's no way. They don't have the internet. How do you know if the guy's a pro-council or a tetriarch? How do you know that? How do you, how do you know who's... And some of these things he says, we thought he was wrong until we found things that vindicated them. Like that one title that he used, um, a uh, polytarch. People were, oh, Luke messed up. Until we recently found, because um, it's nowhere else in the extra literature, until we just found six confirmed archaeological findings that that term is the right one. I mean, that type of stuff is just, Luke just nails it. There's this, one of these days, we may even do this, one of these days, there's a guy by the name of, um, oh dear, Peter, uh, Peter Williams, thank you, help made suitable folks, right there. Peter Williams, he's the head of um, the, the New Testament Society for Cambridge or whatever, and he did this session, you, you think this is boring, i tell you what, I'll post this up on Facebook today, if, you, if you're my Facebook friend, you can check this out. But Peter Williams, or I'll email it to you if you if you abominate Facebook. We can do that too, that's fine. Um, they basically discovered about 30,000 burial boxes, ossuaries in, in Palestine that date from the time of Jesus. And what they're able to get from that is a collection, a data sample, a much larger data sample than they've ever had before, of the popular names. They can figure out what the most common names are. And then... Given that information, they compare the names that show up in the Gospels with the, the chart. Let's see if, if it lines up. Not only does it line up, they start showing you the, the bogus Gospels at the Gospel according to Thomas. Like There's a hundred and something names in Matthew's Gospel. Gospel of Thomas has three names. Because, of course, when you're making something up, you just leave the name. There is a man. There's a certain man that came across another man. Then this man. And I think two of the names are Jesus and Christ. The Christ and Jesus. Um... So, you got to watch this. It's really fascinating. Um, we've, who, anyone seen what I'm talking about? Has anyone here seen? What I'm, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. It sounds boring. We're going to talk about names. and this, Oh, yeah, and the seasons and all that stuff. But he's, he's a great speaker. I heartily recommend it. You will get the idea that the Gospels really stand in a class to themselves in regards to the content and accuracy that the other non-accepted Gospels just don't even come close, not even remotely close. Only people who are eyewitnesses witnesses speak this confidently and add those types of details. And they really stand alone with the names and the details they give. And Luke is the preeminent one among all of them for the details and the names and the locations that he confidently cites throughout the entire um, Near East, through the Mediterranean, over to Troas, over to Macedonia, to Rome. He's just nailing it in every case, nailing it. With the appropriate title, the appropriate title of the city government, the relationship to Rome, just nailing it. And all that back to what you're saying, yes, he does a first-rate historian. Absolutely. That's a long-winded answer. I apologize. i are excited about some of this stuff. Okay, what else? Any other questions? Yes! Yes. What does <laughs> that really mean? Are you talking like leeches and... Oh, that, you're, you're getting back to like Mesmer and uh, this is before even that, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's a Gentile. We don't, well, that's a fair question. We don't fully know. I mean, in other words, the Bible doesn't tell us, so we've got to go outside of the Bible. Well, I want, well, here's, a, here's a point I do want to make clearly. Um, we can go outside of the Bible sometimes to help confirm things, to help learn things, but I firmly believe that God gave us everything we need to understand his word in his word. And so I want to be careful about going too far outside the Bible to come back in. He's a doctor, which is to say he's some form of healer. Um, I don't think he's a religious healer in the sense that he's like a pagan witchcraft person, because then he probably wouldn't be traveling with Paul. Fair enough? Okay. We also know that we tend to have this sort of uh, chronological snobbery view where we think everyone who came before us are a of nincompoops. They understood a lot of things. Paul even gives Timothy some medical advice. Drink some, drink some wine for your stomach. So that gives us some insight into the types of things they are doing. Um, I think it's Luke, though, as maybe a professional courtesy, the woman who had the flow of blood and had spent all of her money on physicians. He leaves that little detail out. <laughs> I think Matthew adds in that she had just been taken advantage of and used by all these physicians to try to solve her problem. I think Luke, as a professional courtesy, probably leaves that out. I don't know. Well, me, I don't know. That's that's it's it's a joke. Thank you. You got my joke. Okay. He does leave that detail out, um, but no, we don't know a ton. Uh, but They understood things like setting broken bones. They understood that. They understood um, a lot of things, and they probably had some weird ideas too about you know body fluids and moving them around the body and and other things and the, the ichors and all that stuff too. I don't know how much Luke bought into. I don't know what school he was trained in. Um, he's a physician and from that I gather, it's not important for us to know with any more detail Luke's particular school of medicine for us to understand the gospel. Um, I don't know. We don't know. Yes, Zeb. In one of the accounts in Acts, let's, let's go there. They're healing people, and Luke, I think, is participating in that. And, and the implication is quite, you could argue maybe Luke has a spiritual gift of healing, but I think, I think another plausible operation is alongside of Paul's supernatural healing ministry, Luke's actually doing medicine. Um, where is it? Uh, see, I should have written this one. I got notes in my office. But Acts Let's try Acts 20 so we can find it. Um, it's one of the we passages. In Acts. Oh, okay. Let's try. I'm in Luke. Wrong book. I don't know. <coughs> Acts 20. Um. Well, okay, let me see if I can find this. I'm dead. Hmm. If we don't find this quickly, I'll give up. I I got it underlined in a document on my desk somewhere. Acts 10.38? No, he hasn't shown up by 10.38. He doesn't show up till Acts 16. Um, What? 16 verse 10. Okay, let's try that one out, folks. No, that's the first place he shows up. He shows up in sixteen ten. That's when Luke shows up. Um, let me read. Just scan here. Sixteen twenty-eight. Twenty-eight seven. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Acts twenty-eight then, folks. Zeb found it. No, but this is the cool thing. If you actually take the time to study the Bible, the details are there. You know, the details are there. 28-7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitality for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul invited visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whoever, whatever we needed. Now, you're reading things into this, but if they honored us, it's entirely possible that Luke's participating in this this ministry to these people. Now, Paul clearly heals Publius's father miraculously, right? So, but who knows? We got a physician. We got people bringing the sick, and at the end of this ministry, the people honored not just Paul, but Paul and Luke, and the rest of whoever's with them. It's it's entirely possible. I, I know I'm filling in white spaces, but here is a place where Luke could have been functioning as a professional physician, right? Um, that's as close as I can get to it for you. With yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Oh, if that's what you're saying, no. By, by calling the beloved, if being a doctor was somehow like, disreputable or, or something, or if he was a terrible doctor, I'd, I don't think Paul would be honoring him with the title beloved physician. No, I think the assumption, beloved physician, this is, this is my doctor. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like Matthew not birth, is not the, yeah, collector. the tax collector. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but Bathsheba is always Uriah's wife. She's always a prostitute. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> okay, don't even go there, Jeremy. Don't even go there. Um. <laughs> okay. Any other any other thoughts or questions? Um, did you guys? I'll throw one out. Did, did did what I was the point I was trying to make about the significance of First Timothy five eighteen. Did did that click? Because to me, that's just absolutely huge. Um, First Timothy 5.18, the, the, the citation. Um, well, it does a couple of things. Let me, let me tell you some other implications it does. There's a fundamental question of, with the sacredness of the Old Testament canon, by what authority do we start adding new books to the Bible? I mean, Jesus has a clear um, scope. When he talks about your, the blood of all the prophets comes upon you from the blood of righteous Abel to Zechariah who died between the horns of the altar, he's citing in their Tanakh, their Old Testament order from Genesis to Second Chronicles, which is where the account of um, Zechariah, dying between the horns of the altar, takes place. He's just uh, authorized, or, or he's just validated their ordering of the Old Testament. So how do we get the Old Testament? Well, we get it from Jesus, right? Fair enough. How do we get the New Testament? Well, you certainly can argue that in John... 14, 15, 16, Jesus speaks with the helper who's coming, who will bring to mind all the things that I've said, and he will lead you in all truth. So you've got the, the mechanism or the, the tools that would enable an inspired written word, but no direct prophecy that he would do that. But then we get the early church hearing God's word in Luke, so we know things are being written. The, the, other, the other reference is in Second is in Peter, where Peter refers to Paul's writings as the Scriptures. Um, we don't know what writings, but we know Peter at least viewed some of Paul's writings as Scripture. And so from those two hints, we get the idea that the New Testament early church, apostolic church, was aware Scripture is being written. Revelation is ongoing. But the other big implication we get from 1 Timothy 5.18 is somehow, and we don't know how, somehow they were able to recognize it. And they didn't have a council and didn't have a synod and they didn't have bishop. I mean, they didn't have like popes and people to tell them. Somehow this underground persecuted church knew. And and just imagine how big of a deal it is to quote. I mean, we don't make it. We don't take Deuteronomy. We don't know who here is like Deuteronomy's life book or anything. But, but Deuteronomy is really the book of Romans for the Old Testament. It is the restating, the relaying out. The, 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 just unpacking the law covenant from Sinai, just like the book of Romans really unpacks and expands the new covenant. And so to quote Deuteronomy, for an ex Pharisee to quote Deuteronomy and then any other work as the scripture with one heading is just jaw dropping. It can only mean this is the word of God. Um, these are people, remember, who wouldn't even write God's name. If they did, they would have to throw away the pen because they wrote the, the, the they couldn't they wouldn't say the name of the Lord. They said the name Hudul Lashem. They would and, okay. We got to they wouldn't no they wouldn't even throw it away. They'd put it aside because they'd have to honor the pen that wrote the divine name anyway. Sorry. Um, so that's just huge, and it, it gives us our confidence that no, we don't know specifically how, but but Jesus said His sheep would hear His voice and follow Him, and when God writes new scripture. Clearly, his sheep heard and treasured it. And it's helpful when councils confirm. It's helpful for me. I find encouragement from knowing that over 2,000 years, there really has been little to no debate over the canon of the Bible. I mean, for all of the attention people want to do to the Gospel of Thomas and stuff, the remarkable thing is how over 2,000 years, it's pretty stinking constant. I mean, yeah, there's Marcion who wants to rip out the Old Testament, and you know, but th- they're the exceptions. What you've got is pretty much the people of Jesus hearing His voice in these sixty-six books, you know, start to finish, and so that's encouraging. You know, I'd feel weird if I was the only sheep who thought I heard His voice in you know your best life now or something. Um, if if no one else did, I'd think that's strange. So it is encouraging that the rest of the people who say they're Jesus' sheep hear His voice in the same place. But yeah, First Timothy five eighteen it absolutely gives the church the warrant to receive Scripture, and to do it on believer's authority without necessarily having to appeal to a higher-up church authority structure. Yes, I spent this morning checking out both the Septuagint and the Hebrew copies to see when he says the Scripture, the only close word-for-word citation is Luke. It's word-for-word Luke. And so it, it's possible that, it's possible that um, Paul is citing some obscure translation that we aren't aware of, of an Old Testament passage that renders it that way. It's word for word, Luke. Like, you, I, I, I cut and pasted all the Greek and checked them alongside each other, because it's also similar to something he says in Matthew, except the Greek construction in Matthew is totally different. Sure. Right. the The exact copy, though, is Luke 10, um, 7. So um, that that's my understanding. It's it's conceivable that he's citing Leviticus, but we wouldn't know what copy of like it doesn't line up with the Septuagint of Leviticus or um, some, maybe some freehand translation of the Hebrew. It's conceivable. Admittedly, it's conceivable. Um, it is word, but when I saw it, was word for word Luke. It's so like, okay, if the glove fits. Shoe fits, right? Glove. I just saw O.J. lost his appeal this morning, so that's what might okay, sorry. Um, any other questions about any of this stuff? Yes, Jeremy. Yes. Pseudonym? Yeah. Yeah. Lover of Christ, right? A lover of God. Theo, like theology, God. And Philo, like Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. So. It, it, well, except the most excellent. And the only other uses Luke makes of that is a Roman official. And as you read Acts, one of the things that comes out is Luke is going out of his way to vindicate Paul as a social disturber. It's always the Jews who followed him and riled up the city. Paul was trying to be peaceful. And since Acts ends with Paul's verdict in doubt hanging, I don't think it's a huge assumption to say part of what Luke's writing is a defense of Paul to a Roman official who may have some influence in his court case. Um, That's where it ends. I mean, he just goes out of his way time and time again. Paul didn't cause the controversy. Paul didn't stir things up. The men of Ephesus started the riot because of the copper salesman It was the... It was Artemis of, what's the dude, the coppersmith, what's his name? Alexander the coppersmith starts the riot because they're not making money selling their gods. It wasn't Paul who started the riot, they started the riot. It was the Jews who followed him from Thessalonica who started the riot. In every instance, Paul is being vindicated. Paul's always treating Roman officials with honor and with dignity, and they're always treating him that way. In other words, as you read Acts, one of the things you see is every Roman Paul has to deal with along the way. They have a respectful relationship him and festus him and felix the centurions the guys on the boat i mean they set him free and paul didn't run free he saved their lives you start to see this theme a theme in acts is an apologetic or defense of paul you add in the fact that you've got an address that sure looks like it's to a roman official okay maybe luke's trying to defend his friend while his verdict weighs in the balance so it's, it's conceivable it certainly is written to the church jeremy but um it 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 um I, I do think there is a real person he's writing to, whether his name is Theophilus or whether that's a pseudonym, I do think it's, there's an individual, a specific individual he's writing to. Fair fair question though. Yes, Zach. Yeah. Oh, they've been around since at least Gospel. I don't know time Third, fourth century. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So other people referenced it, so we knew there was this document, in the Gospel of Thomas, out there. Other church leaders usually referencing it and how it was rejected, but we know it's there. And then when they finally found some copies. That was a big deal, which is why, you know, and then the Da Vinci Code comes out, and that makes it a big deal. Um, but it's like third century, and when it's tried to universally rejected by the church. Besides which, like I said this morning, there's only one gospel, right? Luke's writing, literally Luke begins, katha um, lukan, and same thing with according to, according to, according to. There's no death, burial, resurrection in Thomas. It's not a gospel. It's not a gospel. It's a collection of sayings of Jesus. It's like, these are a bunch of, and one little short narrative about Jesus raising some. Is that the one where the the pigeons, the turn from clay? As a child? Yeah, yeah. The whole thing is that there was a whole, after the apostolic period, there were all these people that mythologized Jesus, like, kind of the same way. And the silver dollar and the, and the, skipping a silver dollar across the mile long Potomac wide Potomac Um, no yeah they're hagiographies you sort of make your leader bigger and greater than he really is and that really looks like that it's really just a collection of sayings of Jesus with a couple childhood accounts there's no death there's no cross there's no resurrection it's it's not gospel whatever it is it's not gospel Um, it's a collection of sayings of Jesus supposedly rejected by the church you know um, I mean, and I can do some more research and come back to you with more on that. But it's just—it's you can't even compare it to these. No, no, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, no. It dates back to what fourth century. Yeah. Um, by the way, they just found a. Fra- this is exciting stuff. Okay, they just found—not just—they're getting ready to publish. Dan Wallace. They're going to do it. But they're—they're going to publish. I think in sixteen they found a f- copy, a near-full copy of the Gospel of Mark, which initial datings come in at 70 AD. I didn't think it was 70. No, it's 70. No, it's 70. It, no, well, it's it's 70. 70. it was the one I'm thinking of before, 40, uh, but i check. check. Yeah. I'm talking about the one where he's having the debate with Bart Ehrman, and he brings it up, and Bart Ehrman's like, whoa, 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 what? Yeah. Yeah, the mask. Yeah, the circ. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it wasn't full. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry, uh, belay that. A partial mark. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. It wasn't written in the fourth century in Alexandria. Okay, cool. Um, (laughs) No, it's amazing what they can figure out. Up till that point, our earliest Greek manuscript is papyri fifty-two, which is a fragment, postage sized fragment of John's gospel. But because it's written on both sides, these guys these people are smart they can extrapolate from the size from, of, the, of, the, of the font, of the handwriting, just how much text, and they know the original size of the page, so you sort of make this blank page, and you figure out how far the lines are apart and how big the writing is, and they can figure out if what's on the back of this fragment should be what would be on the back of ours. And it is, which tells you at least at that section of John, there's no inserted text or missing text from our end. Does that, do you get what I'm saying? Now, yes. Oh, yeah. 150, 125, I mean, when they found that, all sorts of books had to get thrown out. Because you have no idea how many people just want to assume, um, oh, this is all written in the 3rd and 4th century. Then you find a fragment of John from 125. Guess what? That's not true. You know, it's, it's cool. So this one of Mark that they should be publishing, um, assuming the testing holds true, should be coming out in the next year, um, 70 or earlier, AD. Crazy. I mean, understand, we're now talking about 30 years, 35 years from the events? There, I mean, there simply is not time. Well, I mean, and because here's the thing to get. There simply is not time in 30 years with living eyewitnesses for mythological versions of the story to evolve. See, the, the classic understanding of the, the classic liberal understanding, pardon me, is that the stories of Jesus are kind of like the King Arthur tales. It takes hundreds of years to devolve. They keep telling and retelling the story, and as you tell and retell the story, it gets a little more fantastic and a little more romanticized. And what started out as an itinerant Jewish preacher who had some nice things to say about loving your neighbor turns into a megalomaniac who says he's God and who raises people from the dead. And they need the hundreds of years, and they need being removed from firsthand witnesses down in Alexandria to, to justify that type of theory. It just, there is not time for that to happen in 35 36 years there just isn't time and so all of that entire theory just get rid of that you know and i mean there'll be new attacks i mean it's not like the enemy's going to stop but it's nice when you know a prolonged one for the last 150 years finally gets shut down that's always encouraging um yeah 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 right oh yeah Indeed. What do you really think about that? (laughs) (laughs) Elsa. I believe you. I believe you. Thank you for restraining yourself. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Yes, Elsa. Yeah. I tend to think that's probably more hyperbole. It's possible. um, Elsa asked, when Jesus said the very... Stones would cry out. Um, I I tend to think that's just more hyperbole. Like, all of creation is praising God, but without studying that passage in detail, it could be. It could be. The likelihood of that being um, debatable. Um, But uh, it could be. And and let me say one other thing when we talk about all this stuff, and and this gets back to my point in 1 Timothy 5.18. You don't need to be a Bible scholar. You don't need to be an archaeology expert. You don't need to be Dan Wallace finding Greek text to believe the Bible is the Word of God. All that stuff is wonderful to confirm our faith. We as believers hear about, oh, there's this papyri 52 and it's from 125. Yeah, "Yeah, I saw you going, yeah, that's great. They didn't have any of that in Paul's day. And they read it and they said, this is the Word of God. And that's good enough for me. In other words, that stuff's great and it's encouraging and I'm glad it's there and I certainly expect reality to comport with what I read here. I certainly expect that. But I don't believe the Bible because of all those things. All those things encourage me. I believe the Bible because I read it in the same voice I hear in creation, the same voice I hear in my conscience I hear in this book. And I think it's incredibly encouraging that simple first century Christians read Luke and said, yeah, that's scripture. (laughs) You know what I mean, and it wasn't they didn't go to the archaeology and they didn't go to like what the Pope said they didn't go to they 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 started four years they're circulating it and quoting it four years <coughs> right yeah. Oh right no no, no no well it's it's mainly what it's it, it, you can silence what's, what's calvin's phrase silencing the mouths of the obsteferous obstephoous there it is um what these types of work can do is shut the mouths of fools. It isn't going to make anyone believe anything. So fools come and say, we know our wisdom through redaction criticism and form criticism and literate whatever, that the Johannine community evolved. And over time, there was hostility between the Christians and the Jews. But We can see that because in John's gospel, there's this anti-Semitic mentality which clearly indicates that it was written at a much later date. And by the time the corpus was finally consolidated together, blah, 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 blah and they write in... People go, oh, wow, that's, that's good. And then we find a one postage-sized piece of text that destroys that. Oh, they'll come back with some new, perverse, stupid thing to say. But there's a certain amount of satisfaction in watching a fool's mouth get shut. Yes? You can say that you have a chair where you like people to sit in. They don't want to sit in that chair. They say, no, I have this chair I like better. We're in the business of eliminating those chairs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 So no one's no one's going to become a Christian apart from the work of the Holy Spirit opening their eyes. But what we can do, is see, a tick of evangelism and apologetics as the sword and the shield of of witnessing. The sword is simply the simple proclamation of the gospel message. You know, it, it, plus or minus nothing. I mean, you think of the, uh, you think of the story Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus, right? And the, and, and the rich man's in hell, um, in torment. And he wants, um, he wants Abram, Father Abraham, to send back Lazarus to warn his brothers, right? And what's interesting here, here's a guy who I think has the same goal that we would have. Same goal as Abraham. I don't want my brother to perish, right? I think we could all say amen. What they differ on is where the power, where the authority, what is going to convince, what is going to compel, what is going to make a convert of someone. And he says, Abraham says, they have the scriptures, let them hear them. So Abraham says, their best chance is this. Rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone returns from the dead, then they will believe. And amazingly, Abraham says, if they don't receive the scriptures, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Let that sink in. There's no miracle, there's no sign that you can imagine that adds one ounce of strength to the gospel simply recorded in Scripture. This book, the text of Scripture, is just as powerful as the text of Scripture and graveside resurrection evangelism. It's a remarkable claim. And so we're not adding credibility to the gospel by archaeology and stuff. We're shutting them out as a fools. We're, we're we're demonstrating the foolishness. According to 1 Corinthians, God has declared the wisdom of men to be foolish, and the gospel reveals that. And so there is a sense in which we're going to say, look, what you're saying is not credible. Your reasons for not believing are foolish and lies. Your your alternate solutions don't hold together. But they'll just, you know, someone's hiding behind a bush and you, you pluck it up, they'll go hide behind another bush, you know. So there is a value to it. The danger is thinking, if only I can answer this objection, if only I can show them what they're saying is foolish, then they'll believe. No, they won't. They will believe when the Spirit takes the word and applies it to their heart. So there is absolutely a very real value in apologetics. There is. It's just not the value sometimes we think it is. It's not. Apologetics isn't fundamentally evangelism. The declaration of the truth of the gospel is evangelism, and a child who can articulate the gospel is just as powerful in what they wield as you know Spurgeon or you know John MacArthur or whoever. John MacArthur does not add to the power of the gospel. Amen. Okay, just wanted to check. We got some MacArthur fans. We gotta make this is hesitating. Mm, okay, um, John MacArthur does not add to the power of the gospel. Nothing adds to the power of the gospel. So, apologetics is wonderful in giving it, as, as Peter says, giving a reason, giving a offense. So, someone says, "Why on earth would you believe that? That's crazy." You can give it, you know, hey, this isn't crazy. This is credible, and that'll give people a hearing. So they might actually sit down. Okay, well, then tell me what you believe. Well, that's great. Or when some f- fool comes along, I was, I was for a while. I got canceled. Go to debate. Um, what's his name? There's Kingry. What's the guy's name up in Iowa State? What? Yeah, they were lining up... Jason Gerwell was lining up a debate with Daniel and myself and Hector Avalos. They backed out. Um, and, um, you know... Well, I've seen a couple of his debates, and he's kind of dirty. Um, but anyway, we're going to give it a shot. And the value of that isn't fundamentally... The value of doing something like that isn't fundamentally to, to try to win Hector Avalos. He, he seems pretty hard-hearted. God can God can and may open his heart. I hope you will. the value I wanted to do it is to demonstrate to his disciples and his followers, at the very least, we have something credible to say. So perhaps they'll stop long enough to listen to what it is we have to say. I, I think that's that's that'd be the only real reason I would do it is to demonstrate. I know they've made us sound like we're a bunch of ignorant Bible thumping, you know, morons. We do have something credible to say, we do have credible answers. Would you stop long enough to listen to what we have to say? And then they can hear and be saved. So, so I'm, I would do that just primarily to win a hearing. Um, to win a hearing from people that otherwise I may not be able to get a hearing from. It, it fell apart. Um, but th- not because we backed out. Sorry. Um, sorry. OK. Did he? <laughs> I can imagine. No, and Hector Avalos is is, is a sad story. He's uh he was a pastor for how many years? He, he anyway from the very he was a faith healer at like. Oh wow. Five years oh wow. As a super young boy. Yeah. Uh, he went to Harvard Divinity School. Very learned. Yeah, intelligent yeah. Intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And now he is an atheist, he's heading the Department of Religion at the Iowa State. <laughs> and fighting hard against, against people who disagree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he, when I say he fights dirty, he there's um, he a debate with him and William Lane Craig, and he'll, he'll basically try to demonstrate... It's an easy tactic. Once you get this tactic, it's easy to see, but it can be impressive if people don't understand it. He'll put up some slide of some old manuscript. And he'll be like, Dr. Craig, um, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Um, And Dr. Craig's like, yeah, I'm not prepared to speak to that. Like, I'll do some research. I'll come back. Oh, don't you recognize it? Because you referenced it in one of your books. So I thought, look at it again. Does it seem familiar now? And what he's trying to show is this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, which... I mean, you could reference a text and not see the photograph of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, he does stuff like that, and then he'll come back five minutes later. Oh, here's the, One more time, but does this make any sense now? And, and it's very effective for people if they don't think critically. Oh, yeah, that guy's a moron. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But really, it's kind of pointless. Um, anyway, anywho. Hector Alvarez, you can pray for him. And for those... Avalas, Avalas, Hector Avalas, sorry. And for those um, under his influence we got 15 minutes. Anything else? Yes. Um, there's no other recorded Theophilus in Scripture. Um, we do see from extra-biblical writings, the names does appear. It's not unheard of. It's not unknown of. So it, it, it very well could be a real name. There are no other Theophiluses in the Bible. Um, but stepping outside of that to external evidence... It, it appears as though it very well could be a real name. It's also just such a convenient name that it could be a pseudonym. We don't ultimately know, um, but it, it, it's not like some made-up name we've never heard of anywhere else. There, there are Theophiluses in the ancient world. But good question. Anything else? Yes. Yes. I mean, it's something. Well, I don't know what is going to happen in the future. We we believe the canon is closed in that um, Jesus' sheep have not heard his voice in any new writings, and that the that, that standards for canonicity are, are are a number of things, including close association with a with an apostle. For instance, Luke really is Paul's gospel. I mean, I think Paul stands behind a lot of the content of Luke, just like Peter with the traveling companion of John Mark, and Mark is really Peter's gospel in the sense of who's which which apostolic mind and persona is most heavily influenced in that text. Well, John Marks is the student of Peter, and Luke is the traveling companion friend of Paul. And there's a whole list, we don't have time to look through them. the phrases that Luke uses that are echoed in Paul's epistles. Just similar little way that the words are used, just the way you pick up when you're with somebody, their figures of speech, their patterns of speech. There's a lot of Paul's shadow echoing through Luke. So Luke is really accepted in part when the church came together hundreds of years later Luke's close association with Paul is what gives him the apostolic credentials to get into the Bible from the Council of Nicaea's point of view. Um, just as John Mark's close association with Peter is what gets him in at the Council of Nicaea. Um, so there are no living people who've seen the risen Lord and his sufferings. So that's one of the reasons we believe the canon to be closed. But, but God can do what he wants. I'm not aware of a reason why God couldn't author a 67th book of the Bible tomorrow. I have no expectation that he will, but I'm not aware of him constraining himself such that he could not do that if he chose not to. I'm certainly not looking for it. I would expect the same level of authentication, though, to the message. Go to go to Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay attention, much closer attention, sorry, verse 1, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first declared, it was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And then he goes on. The point is, God didn't simply expect the Jews of Jesus' day to take his word for it. He authenticated the message with signs and wonders and miracles. And I would expect God to do the same if he were to suddenly open the canon up tomorrow, that there would be, there'd be an equally um, credible, demonstrable. Um, Confirmation. For instance, we know that two two prophets will come down in the book of Revelation and be struck dead and left in the streets and rise. I have no idea if they're going to be writing scripture, what they're going to be doing. I don't know. Um, I do know that um, for two thousand years, Jesus sheep have heard his voice here and nowhere else. And for two thousand years, there hasn't really been again any credible people coming forward saying this is scripture. But God's God can do what he wants to do, right? so, no, sir. No, sir. I do not. <laughs> Let's go on the record on the, for the tape. For the tape. Um, no, Joseph Smith is not an apostle. Thank you. The golden place that nobody. Sees. The golden place that an angel, yeah, but but the aptly named angel, Moroni. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes, Lee. Well, okay, pause, pause. There's two there's big A apostles and little apostles because Barnabas is an apostle. Well, the problem is you've got a, a word which has a meaning that also becomes a title. It's like deacon. Deacon is just a servant, but it's clear deacons are also a formal title for office holders, which is why there's such a debate over female deacons because phobe is called Paul's art, your servant and minister, your deacon. So is he just simply saying Phoebe is a servant, or is he saying she's a, she holds the office of deacon? Well, the same thing happens here. Apostolos is a sent one, a messenger, an envoy, someone sent with a message. And so Barnabas and other people are called apostles. They're sent with messages. And yet it's clear in other places where Paul says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the risen Lord? He is not saying, are you trying to say I haven't been sent? He's He's claiming to be an, capital A, apostle. And so you've got to go into context to figure out when you see the word apostle. Are we just talking about a sent messenger? Or are we talking about capital A, office-holding apostle? Interesting, again, that there's 13, 12 tribes of Israel. There are 13, 12 apostles. Interesting. Um, yes? <laughs> I, I don't know if they draw lots. I don't understand. No, I don't know. Um, okay, Six minutes. Anything else? Anything else from Luke or anything else? Six minutes. Okay, we can dive into the handout in the Holy Spirit for six minutes. And we will discuss one simple question from that handout. I didn't bother making more of these because the only bit we have to do is four questions. We're just going to discuss them. There aren't any blanks, there aren't anything else. Okay, let's go to Mark chapter 3. The question we're going to discuss for five minutes (laughs) is what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? (laughs) We're going to crack. What I want to do is is, is I want to at least get the discussion going so we can think about it so that next week we can actually talk about it. Indeed, indeed. Um, So let's first look at the textual basis for this notion of one of the more controversial, um, debated topics in the Bible. Let's go to Mark 3. 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons he casts out demons, and he called them to him and said to them in parables... How can Satan cast out Satan? a kingdom is divided against itself. That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and it's divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit um, has, never has forgiveness, this, he, but is guilty of an eternal sin. They're saying he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus is saying all types of sin, all categories of sin, all wickedness can be forgiven, except one sin will never be forgiven, which then, of course, makes us want to be very clear. What exactly is that? Right? Um, so let me let me take a survey of because particip- there's a lot of suggested answers and maybe with our time we can just sort of stir the pot by listing some of the suggestions so if if you've got a thought or if you're aware of a supposed answer let's throw them out so we can see how many different candidates we got so any, who here is taught or got a study bible that tells them something or who's got an idea or heard something of what this can mean what's it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit coach I call him Foch. It's his nickname, Chris. Chris. Okay. So attributing the miraculous, verifying miracles of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to the, to demonic, sources. Okay, what else? What other things could be possibly blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Yes, Sue? Not trusting in Christ. And to this view, what's the unforgivable sin? Not trusting in Christ is the unforgivable sin. That's certainly a view, absolutely. I'm not going to try to sort out the answers this week. I, I was led to the Lord, or very nearly... Well, the, the pastor I first started to begin talking to when I was first getting saved... He thought it specifically meant to curse the Holy Spirit, like if you were to utter some blasphemy or curse the Holy Spirit. That's what he thought it was. You know? um, so you can curse Christ, and that's wicked, but it can be forgiven. You can curse God, that's wicked, and it will be forgiven, but you cannot curse the Holy Spirit. Under that logic, um comedians and noted um, magicians Penn and Teller in an effort to get people to stop evangelizing them, did a YouTube challenge where if you would utter a blasphemy towards the Holy Spirit, I think they'd give you a dollar or a Coke or something. And they've got thousands of, of people uploading YouTube videos of them saying, I curse the Holy Spirit. Because basically their logic is, according to Christians, once you've done that, you can't be saved. Now maybe they'll leave us alone. It's sad. It's very sad. Um, that's, that's certainly one view. Anything else? Anything else? Yes. Yeah, your study Bible answers. i she's just gonna read out the study. Okay, I can stop now. Go. I think you're gonna read. Yeah, but I'm at it. Oh, okay. <laughs> you <laughs> Interesting. So that's a slight nuance what Chris said. Or, it's, or there's there's the view that Chris laid out has two versions of it. And they cited one of them, and you didn't specify which version you had. The view that it is attributing to Jesus the, the miraculous works of Jesus to the devil, there's one view that says really the unforgivable sin could only have occurred during the lifetime of Jesus. That's that's one subset. Meaning only those people who witnessed the miraculous testimony of the Holy Spirit to Jesus, only those people who who saw the miracles Jesus did, and who then attributed those miracles to Satan, only those people are could, capable of committing that sin. That's one subset of that view. The other subset would be likewise any Christian today who the Holy Spirit testifies to them to the truthfulness of this message. They know because the Spirit has testified to them. They are able to see because the Spirit has opened their eyes, to then attribute it to Satan, to then reject it, there's no coming back from that. That's, I think, what yours are saying there, which is similar, but a sub-variation. Okay. Wouldn't Stephen's testimony imply that? It does. Stephen says that! He says that, Zeb. I'm just trying to stir the pot somewhere. Come on, Zeb. You always, you stubborn, stiff-necked people, you and your fathers have always resisted the spirit. Um, Okay, we will pick this up next week and try to resolve what is the unforgivable sin. I will point out, okay, I'll tell you one answer. Unbelief I don't think works because if unbelief is the unforgivable sin, who here has not committed the sin of unbelief? We got a problem then. Um, Maybe you have to nuance that view. Dying in unbelief is the unforgivable sin. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, we'll pick this up next week where I will solve all problems and all answers. Uh, No, no, no. That's pretty close to blasphemy right there, huh? Okay. Um, Shut this guy off. All right.